And while those are making their way out, uh, this comes as no surprise to anybody in the room. We are about four or five days away, five days away from Christmas. And so this morning, we're going to spend some time studying through the incarnation of Jesus. And so if you have your Bibles this morning, go ahead and turn to Galatians chapter 4. That's the passage we're going to study through today, Galatians chapter 4. And before we dig in, we're going to ask God to reveal Himself. We're going to ask God to do what we just sang. We're going to ask God to reveal Himself to us through His Word. That He would show us Christ from His Word. I'm going to pray, but we're all going to pray. So let's go to the Lord. Father, we come to You this morning standing in the finished work of Jesus, Your Son. And we are Yours, Lord. And we plead that this morning, that we belong to You, that we were far off ones. Yes, we were, Lord, but You have brought us near by the blood of Christ. And we are near this morning, and You are among us, God. By Your promise, Lord, You walk among us. And we come to You now, God, and we call out to You, Father. And we, our prayer this morning, Lord, is that You would feed us, Lord, with the words from Your mouth. God, that You would visit, Lord, the teaching and the preaching of Your Word, that You would visit it with power. Make it effective in our lives, Lord. Make it profitable for us, God. And we confess our weakness. God, I confess my weakness to teach, and I confess this church's weakness to hear Your Word apart from Your help, Lord. We are weak without You. We can do nothing without You, Lord Jesus. So we ask You to help us. And we ask, Lord, that You would stand by Your Word, Your promise to us. You promised us, Lord, Lord Jesus, You promised us that to everyone who believes, that they would never hunger, and that everyone who believes would never thirst, Lord. And we ask, God, that You would stand in our midst this morning, and that You would feed us with words from Your mouth. Lord, give every person in this room what they need. Satisfy our desires, Lord, those deep longings within us. God, satisfy us with with Yourself, Lord. God, I pray that You would lift up our heads this morning, that You would comfort the afflicted this morning, Lord, and that You would encourage us, God, that that You would drive away the discouragement that lands on us so often, Lord, that cause us to be foggy towards Your promises and Your presence. God, come meet with us today, we pray. Come visit Your Word with power this morning. In the name of Jesus, Amen. Amen. I want everybody to turn to Galatians chapter 4. And we are going to read verses 4 through 6 together. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. This will be our text this morning. This is the Word of God. Do you ever get tired of saying that? This is the Word of God. Communication from another world breaking into our world. The living world breathing Word of God. This is what he says, Galatians 4.4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. I want us to give us a thesis this morning at the beginning. I want want to give us this to kind of let you know where we're headed. And my thesis is this. If I were to summarize this passage and say it in a sentence, this would be it. 
The Son of God became the Son of Man. The Son of God became the Son of Man. So that the sons of men could become the sons of God. This summarizes the, the Christmas story in just a simple sentence. And that's where we're headed this morning. We're going to unpack this. For centuries, almost 2,000 years at this point, the Christian church, the church of Jesus, we have celebrated what's called the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And if you've never had that term defined before, that word incarnation simply means the infleshing of God the Son. This holy moment where God the Eternal Son wraps Himself in human flesh. This is the Christmas story. This has always been what the church has celebrated. The incarnation of the Son of God. I want to give us just a quick warning. We, we all, most of us, almost every single one of us grew up in a culture that to some degree in time past had been impacted by the gospel. That the gospel took root in this culture and to a degree it shaped the way that our culture approaches this season. The season that we're entering into. But the danger for us is that this culture over the past hundred years, this culture has began to de-emphasize this season. De-emphasize the things of Jesus. Okay, This is the culture that we grew up in. The, this, this celebration of the incarnation of Jesus okay, has become a vague celebration of goodwill, just general goodwill and happy feelings. And it's really, in our culture, it's taken more of a root of sentimentalism than of celebrating the incarnation. Now, that's not a surprise to anybody in here. That's not a newsflash. And really the danger for us in this room okay. It's not so much that anybody in this room or most of us in this room would redefine Christmas in a secular way. But the danger that's a real danger for us in this room is that we would approach this season and seasons like this and that Jesus Christ would be de-emphasized, that he would be de-emphasized. And what that would look like is a cultural Christian knowledge of the incarnation. You know just enough about the story of Christmas and about the facts of Jesus' birth to, to, to lay out something on a piece of paper, but it doesn't hit your soul. It doesn't grip you. The, the glory and the beauty and the grace of God that is poured out in the manger, it doesn't grip you. We can be, we can be blinded to the glory of Christ. And so that's, that's more the danger for us, is that the things of Jesus, the story of Jesus, would be like background noise as we, as we approach this Christmas season. Okay? And just a warning is this. The Son of God did not become the Son of Man to be background noise. He didn't become the Son of Man to be de-emphasized in any way. He came to be the centerpiece of the story. He came to be glorified. He came to be worshipped. So we want to study this with this aim. We don't want to just know facts this morning. We want to behold the glory of God incarnate. We want to see it. We want to taste the things of Jesus. We want to be reminded not just of the truthfulness of these things, but of the beauty of it. And so our prayer is that the Holy Spirit would help us to linger over these words, arrest our attention, and drive it deep into our hearts. That would cause us to worship Him. That would cause us to worship Him. This is how we're going to study this today. With this aim, Lord Jesus, show us Your glory. And I want you to pray that for yourself. As we're unpacking this Word, pray that for your neighbor. Lord Jesus, show us Your glory. 
We're going to study this incarnation under three headings today. And the first is this. The timing of the incarnation, number one. The identity of the incarnate Son, number two. And the purpose of the incarnation. This is, this is how this is laid out in Galatians chapter 4. So let's jump right in. Let's go right in. Number one, the timing of the incarnation. And you see this in verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come. When the fullness of time had come. I want you to think, this is an interesting question. If you were to ever ask yourself, when did the Christmas story begin? When did it start? Just imagine somebody uh, asking you at work this week, oh, you're a Christian, right? Maybe somebody's a militant atheist that you work with, and, and they, and they want to ingest in, ingest in you and, and, and in a way. They, they ask, you're a Christian, right? Tell me, tell me when the Christmas story started. What would you say? How would you answer that? How does it begin? If, if you were to lay it out for somebody, where would you start? And almost immediately we think of Luke chapter 2 or another account of the birth of Jesus in the Gospels. In Luke chapter 2, when Jesus is actually born in the, in the city of Bethlehem, His actual birth and the angels begin worshiping because the Son of God has come in the world. So we can start there. But we could also back up one chapter to Luke chapter 1 when the angel Gabriel and he visits the Virgin Mary in a town called Nazareth and he announces to her that you are a virgin but you're going to give birth to the Most High God. We can start there. Many people do with the Christian story, Christmas story. Or you could back up about 600 years and there was this holy man named Isaiah. He was a prophet of God. And for 600 years, these prophecies had been announced from Isaiah's mouth. Isaiah, Isaiah 7, that there's going to come this baby from this virgin birth. Isaiah 9, 6, and this is baby. His name, he's going to be a baby and he's going to be born of a virgin. But his name is going to be Mighty God. There is going to be a baby born in this world named Mighty God. You can start there. Old Testament prophecy. Or you could back up all the way to the beginning. And we've been coming through the book of Genesis for several months. All the way to the beginning in Genesis chapter 3. We, we have worn this out. And there's no way to wear this promise out. But we have been a constant, constantly emphasizing this for months. That immediately, immediately after sin enters the world, what does God do? In Genesis 3.15, God announces a promise of a deliverer, a redeemer, a conqueror. What does he say? He says to the woman that your offspring, one of your seed, there's going to be a seed of the woman that's going to arise and he's going to crush the head of the serpent. So from the beginning, from the very beginning, we have been in, in anticipation of a real human being. That's what that means. A seed of of the woman. There would be a real human being that would arise and conquer the evil one from the beginning. So, we, so I hope you see this. This Christmas story, it's been unfolding for thousands and thousands of years. It doesn't just start in Luke chapter 2. That's the climax of the story and the, and the breaking forth of the birth of Christ. But this is rooted in the very beginning. And I want to encourage you that we can go back even further we can go back even further than the beginning. And you say, what do you mean? You can't go before the beginning. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. We can go. This Christmas story is rooted before the beginning. 
Before Genesis 1. You say, what do you mean? Here we go. Before the beginning, before time began, before the world was created, the Bible teaches us that there was nothing except for God. And that God existed in three persons and they were in perfect relationship to one another. All the way as far as our pitiful, finite minds can think in eternity past. This God, this eternal God, inhabiting eternity, dwelling in eternity. He's in perfect relationship with Himself. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. This is a picture of God the Father and God the Son and this perfect relationship to one another. And the Greek phrase there is face to face. They are an intimate relationship to one another from eternity past. And in fact, when Jesus prays to the Father in John 17, He says, Restore to me the glory that I had with you before the world existed. He's in this face to face relationship with the Father and the Bible calls that glory. They are in glory together, inhabiting eternity. Within that perfect relationship, something happens. We don't know when. Something rooted in eternity past. And they come together, the members of the triune God, and they devise a pre-time plan. There was a plan in place before time existed. There was a plan in place before Genesis chapter 1. People call this the covenant of redemption. That's what people refer to this as. When they met together and they devised this plan, that's the covenant of redemption. The Bible calls this the eternal purpose of God. His purpose rooted in eternity past that carries into eternity future. The eternal purpose of God. Here are just a few details of that plan that they devised between themselves in eternity past. In this holy council of the members of the Trinity, God the Father promises that the Son would reign as King over an eternal kingdom. That's Matthew 25, verse 34. In addition to this, the Son was promised not just an eternal kingdom, but that His dominion would be over all the peoples of the earth, all the nations, all the people groups that God had created. That's Psalm, chapter, Psalm 2. And then if we read Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10, we find out not only is Jesus going to reign over an eternal earthly kingdom, Ephesians chapter 1 tells us that everything, even in heaven and on earth, is going to be summed up, up under the authority of, of this Christ, under the authority of God's Son. This has been God's plan before time. Before time, this is the plan that was in place. That Jesus would reign as the king of the universe. He would reign over all that He has made. He would reign over every square inch of His creation. Things in heaven and things on earth. Everything that could possibly come into your mind right now. Even things that we will never see. Jesus has promised to reign over them. He is the king of the universe. Promised from eternity. From that time forward, coming out of that meeting, God has worked all things according to the counsel of this will, according to the counsel of this plan. So coming out of that meeting, everything else that happens after that is to accomplish this plan. He works all things 
in all of history, He bends it to accomplish this purpose, the exaltation of His Son over all things, over all that He has made. In addition to the Son eternally reigning over all creation, in this council, God the Father promises God the Son that the Son is going to receive a people, His own special people. That's the good news. This is where we come into the story. That the Son's going to receive His own special people. The Bible pictures this as an all-nations bride that Jesus is to receive as the reward for His suffering. That's Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. This is, this is us. This is our salvation devised and planned in the mind of God before time existed. Before time began, there was a plan in place to save us. This is an amazing thought. And I want this to encourage you this morning. Before you were born, yes, God had determined to save you. Even before that, even before Christ died for you, 2,000 years ago, God had determined to save you. I remember Josh Reagan. This is several months ago. I don't know if you remember this. But he sends me a picture of him about 10 years ago. And you know, he's pretty thugged out 10, 10 years ago. And we were, we were both baseball players, so I mean... That is the most arrogant of the arrogant. You own that, right? Me, I own it too. And so he sends me a picture, and he says, picture in the text right up under, he says, dead in trespasses and sins. And I thought, amen, I can relate to that. I can think back to a time in my life where I was dead under the curse of God. And then I thought in a moment, but you know something else is true. And I shot him back a text, and I said, chosen before the foundation of the world. And this is the encouragement that we would all be reminded that we have been marked by God from the very beginning. He, we were marked by Him, pursued by Him, chosen from the foundation of the world. Our salvation, can you even begin to fathom this, is devised in the mind of God before time began. How encouraging is that? How encouraging is that? 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. We have been marked from before the beginning. And what I want us to see is this reference to time. Okay, Here's what I want us to see. Literally, God started time to accomplish this plan. Not the other way around. God started Genesis 1 to bring about this plan of Jesus redeeming all things. Of Jesus reigning over all things. This is His sovereignty. We have mentioned this to you many times. Many times you could probably think of, think of either me or Ryan or somebody saying that salvation, this gospel, this is not plan B. Okay? This is not the audible that God calls in the Garden of Eden where He's blindsided by the sin of man and He calls that audible. He says, well, you know what? I got plan B. I'll send the Son and He'll redeem them from their sins. Never has it been plan B. This has always been the plan of God. Time itself, time itself exists to accomplish this plan. So think about this. Sometimes we say in our culture, we say things like, you know, this is my now time. I was made for this moment. 
Something like that. Even, even in the Word of God, even in the book of Esther, there was something similar said to this woman that for such a time as this, she came to the kingdom. Okay? And we can say things like that, and there's a measure of truth to some of that, that there, there are these times in our life that, that the Lord wills to accomplish something very specific through us. But you can't say that about Jesus. Okay? When we're talking about Christ the script flips upside down. And we don't say that He was made for this moment. We say that this moment was made for Christ. Time itself exists for Jesus, for His exaltation. Time bends and worships Christ. God owns time, controls time. This is His design. He starts Genesis 1 to exalt His Son. God prepared time for His Son, not the other way around. Okay? So when we unpack this phrase in a moment, in the fullness of time, it wasn't that God made Jesus just right for this moment. It's that God made this moment just right to unleash His salvation that He had planned in eternity past. He is sovereign over time. In Genesis 1, He starts it. Time begins. And it begins to click. Moment by moment. History is happening day by day, moment by moment, and time is advancing after it starts in Genesis 1 until what our passage today calls until the fullness comes. So it's clicking, clicking, clicking until the fullness comes. Okay? And I want us to get a word picture to understand this word fullness, the fullness of time. And... Probably everybody in here, at some point in your life, you lived in a house with a dripping faucet. Faucet just drips some water. And I want you to picture all of history like an empty cup sitting before a dripping faucet. And moment, as moments pass, drop, 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 and that cup begins over time. It's slow. And that cup begins to fill up. And all of a sudden, it starts to get to the very top. And the fullness of time... What's the fullness of time? The fullness of time is when that last drop sends water exploding over the sides of that cup. And that's exactly what Jesus does. He is that drop. At the fullness of time, He is revealed on planet earth. And that last drop, when Jesus comes into the world, He unleashes the promises of God on His creation. In the fullness of time. This, this moment... That drop that sends everything spilling over the sides. This is a real moment in human history. It is a real moment in human history. And I want us to spend some time worshiping the Lord. Worshiping the only wise God. The sovereign God. For the wisdom that He displayed. This, the coming of the Son happens at the exact right time in human history. So let's spend some time unpacking this. It was the exact right time culturally. Culturally. Exact right time culturally. About 300 years before Jesus is born into planet earth, there was one of the greatest conquerors. He was, he was a wicked man, but he was a mighty conqueror in the earth. And his name was Alexander the Great. Anybody ever heard that in school? He's a conqueror. And he conquered massive amounts of humanity. Okay, this is, this is the, 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 the Greek empire. And he spreads it out among a lot of the known world at the time. And when he does that, guess what goes with him as he spreads his dominion? The Greek language begins to spread and planet earth and take root. And then he dies. 
about 300 years before Jesus. And in the place of this Greek empire, this Roman empire arises. And what, it, what does the Roman empire do? It conquers even more and it spreads this Greek language even more into planet earth. This is, this is completely unique Okay, up until this point in history. This is a unique thing. This is exactly the right moment culturally. You say, what do you mean? The time is ripe in the sense that God has given, in this moment of history, God has given massive amounts of humanity a way to communicate with one another. That there's a common language that is circulating in the Roman Empire called Koine Greek. Literally, common Greek. There's a way for peoples and nations to talk to one another. And this is the language. This is the language that God would use to write the New Testament. And this is the language that our sovereign God would use to, to infiltrate the, the, the initial penetration of the Gospels into the peoples of the earth. It was the perfect time culturally with this language. But it was also exactly the right time politically. It's the right time politically. The Roman Empire, if you know anything about them, you know that, that, that they crushed their enemies. They subjugated peoples. They ruled the known world. And one of the things, one of the benefits of living in the Roman Empire during this time is that they conquered their enemies. That means that there was very few attacks from the outside onto Rome. They enjoyed a time of peace. Even scholars that study Roman history, they refer to it as the, the peace of Rome. They enjoyed the peace of Rome. And the reason that this is important is because during this time of peace, the Roman government goes ballistic in building roads to connect everywhere in the empire. It was a time of trade. It was a time of progress. Okay, And these Roman roads, they're unique in human history. Hasn't happened like this up to this point. This is completely unique in human history. Now all of a sudden you got peoples that can move freely with other peoples on planet earth. And, and, there, and there's a connectedness that the world is experiencing that they haven't experienced before. And in the sovereignty of God and in the wisdom of God, these are the roads that God would use to fling His gospel out into this initial penetration of the gospel to the nations. This is the perfect time, the exact right time. Okay, But it's also the, the exact right time theologically. You say, what do you mean? Old Testament prophecies, we talked about several of them already this morning. Isaiah's prophecies about the Son to be born, they had been sitting dormant for, for over 600 years, maybe even closer to 700 years. They've been sitting like a dormant nuclear bomb on a shelf just waiting to explode, right? They've been sitting dormant, but God's Word, it was sure to break forth in fulfillment. And if you even back up further than that, the prophecies uh, coming out of Genesis 3, these things are thousands, these promises are thousands of years old at this point, but they're sitting dormant. They're waiting for fulfillment. They're waiting for fulfillment. Even the Jews of this time period, they realized, Colby referenced this a minute ago, even the Jews that lived in what we call now the intertestamental period, they realized that God was silent, that there was not a prophet among them, that God had not spoken to them. In fact, they were waiting on His messenger. The last thing that God had told Israel, we read in, in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. 
He says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and the awesome day of the Lord comes. It's the last thing he said, and they're waiting on him. This is a time of expectancy, and this time is ripe for the promises of God to break into fulfillment. It is the exact right moment that God sent His Son into the world. The exact right moment that He sent Him into the world. And the word sent there is the same root word that we use for the word apostle. So the the picture there that I want us to get is just like Jesus sends those apostles out with a mission to accomplish, God the Father sends God the Son to planet earth with a mission to accomplish. He is sent for a reason. He's sent to do something. Listen to John 3, 17. God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Might be saved through Him. The Son of God is sent by God the Father on a rescue mission of salvation. This is more than just a cute baby in a manger story. He's in that manger because He's here to do something. He's here. He's on a mission. He's been sent to accomplish a work. This is the time. Next, I want us to look at the identity. The identity of the incarnate Son. This will be head number two on your outline. Listen to the rest of verse 4. In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. This is the identity of the Son of God. This is who He is. This passage tells us who Jesus is. And the reason that that's important for us is it's one thing to have cute sentimental feelings when you think about this baby in a manger, right? That's one thing. It's a whole nother ball game. It's a whole different story when you know what the Word of God says about that baby in the manger. Who is He? Who does, the, who does God say He is? And this passage tells us. Notice how the Word, of, a word of, describes Jesus in verse 4. He's the baby in the manger, but He's sent from the Father. He's born of a woman, and He's born under the law. Those are the three qualities that we're going to look at this morning. And every single one of them are essential for Jesus to accomplish that mission that the Father sent Him on. You can't remove one of these or the mission has failed. The mission will not be accomplished. If Jesus is not God, man, and sinless, that's where we're going. This is how important this is. If the baby in the manger is not God, man, and sinless, then every single person in this room is dead in your sins. This is who He is. This is who He has to be. Number one, He's the the baby in the manger is God. The baby in the manger is God. Verse 4. In verse 4, we see that that the Son that is sent has pre-existence. You say, what do you mean? Let's talk about this for a minute. Where were you at before you were born? Where were you before you were born? You're the same as me. You're nowhere. You were were nowhere because there was no you before you were born. Everybody with me? You did not exist 
until you were born. What does this verse say about where Jesus was before He was born? Where was this baby in the manger before He was born? And verse 4 tells us that before Jesus was born, He was sent by the Father. Literally, sent out or sent away from the Father. Did you catch that? Okay, before Jesus was born, He was sent. That means He existed. And even more than that, if the Father sends Him out, sends Him away... Where is Jesus? If the Father sends Him out and sends Him away, where is Jesus? With the Father. Before He was born, the baby in the manger existed and He's with the Father. He is the pre-existent One. He is the pre-existent One. John 8, verse 58, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. Jesus claimed that about himself. And so now we got some game changers in place. Now we got some language around this baby in the manger. Not just a cute little baby in the manger. The Bible teaches that that baby in the manger is the eternal Son of God invading time. The eternal one is invading his creation on a rescue mission. He is a baby. But His name is Mighty God. Isaiah 9, verse 6. The baby in the manger is God. But at the same time, at the same time, the baby in the manger is a man. He's a real human being. Look at verse 4. He is born of a woman. The one that has existed from eternity. The one who inhabits eternity. Dwells in inapproachable light, born of a woman. Born of a woman. Jesus himself uses this phrase in Matthew eleven, eleven. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, truly, truly, I say to you, among those born of woman, there has not arisen one greater than John the Baptist. That phrase is just a shorthand way of describing a human being. Jesus is saying, of all human beings, none greater than John the Baptist. And what Paul is saying about Jesus here is that he is human. He is human. The Bethlehem story is the story of a real virgin mother giving birth to a real human being. There's nothing fairy tale about it. Okay? And if you're starting from from the presupposition that there is no God, of course this is a stumbling block for you. Of course it is. If there is no God, you'll fall on your face. You'll trip over the stumbling stone, fall flat on your face when you hear about a virgin giving birth to God, but yet man. But if, if your presupposition is a God who created all things with the word of his mouth, then how hard is it? How hard is it for him to bring forth himself out of a virgin? This is the story that the baby in the manger is God, and yet at the same time, The baby in the manger is man. This is why we refer to Jesus. He is the God-man. None like Him. Never happened before. Never going to happen again. You have two natures. The divine nature and the human nature. And they come together. And they meet together in this one glorious Christ. This is why we worship Him. There is none like Him. He is the God-man. And this just wasn't just for a little moment. Do you know this? That even now... And I know that you love Jesus. Even now as we're speaking, He is still 
He is still the God-man. That divine nature and that human nature came together at Bethlehem, never to be separated for all eternity. We worship Him. He's the God-man, the one and only. John 1, 14. John chapter 1, verse 14. And the Word, the Word that was with God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The baby in the manger is God, and the baby in the manger is man, and we're still not done. Number three, the baby in the manger is sinless. He is the sinless God-man. Verse four, not only is He born of a woman, but He is born under law. He is born under the law. Just like every real human being that is born in this world, Jesus is born with a moral obligation to the law of God. Comes into this world in real humanity, accountable to God. In a real human body like yours. In a real human body like yours. He's accountable to the law just like you. But unlike anyone else, In all of history, Jesus lives his entire life perfectly sinless under this law. Under this law. In a body like yours, Jesus perfectly obeyed the same law that you have broken thousands of times this year. Perfect obedience. Think about the greatest commandment in the Word of God that God demands of you. That you love the Lord your God with everything that you have. All your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. The sinless God, man, He never stumbles. There's never a moment where He is not loving the Father with everything that He has. There is never a moment in Jesus' life where He doesn't love His neighbor as Himself. He never stumbles under the same law that we break. Gajillions of times over that we break. He never stumbles. He's sinless under the law of God. Matthew 5, verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He's coming into the world to fulfill this law. Born under the law to put away the law by fulfilling it. He is the sinless God-man. The story of Christmas is the story of the eternal one invading time. It's the story of the creator of human beings becoming a human being. And it's the story of the highest kings, the highest kings being subject to his own law. This is the condescension and the grace and the beauty of this story. He is the sinless God-man. And this is essential if he is to fulfill his mission. You say, what do you mean? If he is not God, he cannot save. If he is not God, he cannot save. If you want a little G, Jesus, if you want a form of Christ without his divinity, he cannot save you. He cannot. He cannot pay the price for multitudes and multitudes and multitudes of sinners to worship the Father forever. If He's not God, He cannot save. But if He's not man, then He cannot die for you. God cannot die. God took on a human body to lay down His life. 
If He's not God, He can't save. If He's not man, He can't die for you. And if He's not sinless, He's disqualified to die as your substitute. If He's not sinless, He has to die for His own sin. This is why He's presented to us. This baby is the sinless God-man. There is none like Him. There is none besides Him. He is the only way to the Father. Why? Because He's the only one qualified to save sinners. None like Him. None besides Him. He is the only one qualified to rescue us. To accomplish this mission that He's been given by the Father. So our last question is why did He come? Why did He come? We know when He came. We know who He is, but why is He here? What are the purposes of the Incarnation? What goals, end goals is He after? Why is that baby in the manger, right? Now we already know that He's here on a salvation mission, that He's here to rescue sinners, but it gets more specific than that. It gets more specific than that. Look at verse 5. He came to redeem those who were under the law. So that we might receive adoption as sons. Verse 5, there are two purpose statements. Jesus came for a twofold reason in verse 5. And this might be obscured a little bit in our English translations, but these two phrases start with the same Greek word. It's the word henna. And that word means in order that. Jesus did this in order that. Jesus did this in order that. And here's the purposes of the incarnation. He came in order that He might redeem us. And Jesus came in order that we might receive the adoption. This is His double purpose. He came to redeem and He came to adopt us. So this is the story of God the Son leaving glory with the Father, invading time for a reason. He is here for a reason. He is accomplishing real specific objectives in our lives. Real specific objectives. So that we could be redeemed and so that we could be adopted. And I want to ask you this. How good is that news that the Son of God is here? The Son of God came as the Son of Man to redeem and to adopt how good of news is that to a group of sinners like us that are under God's wrath and separated from God? That there's a way for us to be redeemed and that there's a way for us to be adopted. Please tell me when we're done today if you have any better news than this glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. That He meets us in our ultimate needs. That He is here to save us. That He's here to redeem us. That He's here to adopt us. Let's spend some time on redemption. This offer of redemption is always going to be surface level knowledge to you unless you understand something. Your whole life you're going to spend hearing people talk about the forgiveness of sins and the death of Jesus on the cross in your place unless you understand something. And the thing that you have to understand that makes this news so glorious so glorious, grace from God poured out on us, is that every single one of us, every single one of us are sinners. We break God's law and we are under the penalty of God's law. This is why this news is the highest of news. 
This gospel is the glorious grace of God because we are under the penalty of God's law. In the book of Galatians, just to put a vivid description on that, the book of Galatians calls that penalty the curse of God. The Bible teaches that every single one of us are under God's curse. Under His curse. Listen to Galatians 3, 10. It says, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. You say, well, that's, that's pretty strict. You don't get to make the rules. That is the Word of God. That every single person that fails to do all that God has required incurs the curse of the law. The curse of God Himself. Who among us can say that they've done that? That you have done everything that the law of God requires. Let's just start with the greatest commandment. In fact, there's no such thing as a little sinner in all of God's creation. The greatest commandment demands that every single moment of your life, you are so consumed with passion for the God of Scripture that you love Him with everything that you have without fail. Anybody done that? Every single second that you have existed. We have all broken God's law and we are all under God's curse. You have to see this. You have to see this. This is the background of Jesus. This is the backdrop of salvation. He's the, sal- he's the Savior of sinners. And I want you to fight. I want you to fight not to ignore this. And I want you to fight to see this debt that you owe God as real. I want you to see the curse of God on sinners as real. It's not theoretical. It's a real thing. And then I want you to take it even a step further. Not just real. It's personal. This curse is on all who have sinned against God. All. Every single one of us who have sinned against God. You, personally, cursed by God. This is what awaits us apart from Jesus Christ. Unless this news breaks forth on the earth, that's where we are. That's where we all stand. Cursed by God. This is really true about you. Therefore, this reality makes the next thing that we look at glorious grace from God. You mean, you're telling me that this God of Scripture, even though that I've rebelled against Him from the moment that I have existed, spit in His face, rejected His rule, you mean you're telling me He planned to save me? That there's a way for me to be rescued from His penalty? And are you kidding me? He gave the Son for me? He gave His only Son for me? And this is exactly what Jesus has come to do. He is born to die. He is born to die in our place. This word, redemption, it means to purchase. He came to purchase us, to buy us. What that means is He came to pay that debt that we owed to the law of God. That curse that we owed to God's law. Jesus came in a real human body, in a sinless body to pay that for us. To pay it for us. Listen to Galatians 3.13. This is the curse-bearing death of Jesus in our place. Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. What happened to that baby in the manger? He He was crucified. He was hammered to the tree. And it was more than just a gruesome murder. That baby in the manger bore 
your curse. He bore your curse in his own body, in his own body. If you even began to understand the glory that's in that message, how much would you love him? The one who, abo- who bore your eternal curse, how much would you love him? This is glorious grace from God. Bethlehem is not the end of the Christmas story, and you see this all the time. That cradle doesn't mean anything without this cross that we're talking about. He is born to die. He is born to die. There is no way for sinful man to be right with God apart from this redemption price being paid. And so what happens is that this cute, sinless baby grows up sinless. And that cute, sinless baby... He is slaughtered in our place as the Lamb of God. Slaughtered in our place as the Lamb of God for the forgiveness of our sins. He pays our debt with His own life. He died for us. Listen to Romans 3. 23-25 For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's us, right? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then listen. And are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Do you know that God did that with His Son for you? That He put His only Son forward as a bloody payment, as a nasty bloody payment in your place for your sins. That's the propitiation. The redemption prize. That's how wicked we are. No such thing as a little sinner in all of God's creation. If you will ever be saved, every single one of you were so wicked that the Son of God had to die for you. He had to pay your price. He had to bear your curse. And the Bible teaches that Jesus is this bloody payment on His cross, but it also teaches that this payment is, it has to be accepted by faith. It's to be received by faith. This is not automatically good news to every person in God's creation. You have to respond to what He's done. He came and He's done a work. He's finished a work. But it has to be received. It has to be received. This payment has to be received. So the question for every person in this room right now is what are you trusting in today? Today. Right now. Real time. In this moment. When you think about your right standing before God the judge, right now, what are you trusting in? Not what happened in your life six months ago, one year ago, ten years ago, twenty years ago. What are you trusting in right now? Because it has to be. It has to be. This sacrifice of this sinless God-man in your place. This is the only way to be right with God. The free grace of God, but this is the only way to receive it. That you entirely and solely trust Him for your right standing with God the judge. This is redemption. This is redemption. This is why He came to redeem us, to buy us back, that we would be right with God. Every person that believes this gospel instantaneously receives a status that we call righteousness. That your sinful record is imputed to Jesus Christ and His righteous perfect record is given to you. And that God not only forgives your sin, and that is glorious good news, that all your wicked deeds are put away and God refuses to remember them, 
But even more than that, that God sees you with the perfect obedience of Jesus wrapped around you and you wear the righteousness of Christ like a garment. Like a garment. This is why He's here. Romans chapter 4, verse 7 and 8. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Should there be anybody on planet earth that is more blessed than the man or the woman that have had the curse of God lifted off of them? Yes or no? No one is more blessed than those who have been redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ. Our eternal curse lifted off of us. The free grace and the mercy of God. This is redemption. But Galatians 4 doesn't stop there. And the Word of God does this a lot, right? It's good and it gets better. And Galatians 4 tells us that He came to do more than make us righteous. That is not heretical. He did come to make us righteous, but He came to do more than that. He came to do more than that. He came to redeem, but He also came to adopt us. He also came to adopt us. Jesus came not only to deliver us from the greatest punishment imaginable, but He also came to give us the greatest gift that we could possibly imagine. We get God. We get God. Specifically in Galatians 4, we get God as our Father. God is our Father. Now we have a glorious, full, multi-sided gospel of grace. You say, what do you mean? Not only, not only... Are we justified before God the judge? And that in the courtroom of God, our sinful record is removed. But the Lord Jesus came. And because of what He's done, God the judge, God the holy judge steps off the bench and welcomes us into His own family as His own children. God the holy judge becomes God our heavenly Father. This is a glorious gospel. This is a glorious gospel. He came to do more They forgive us of our sin. And this gift of adoption is mind-blowing. It is glorious grace from God. It is is heart-gripping. This gift of adoption can be called the highest gift of the gospel. Why? Because you are enjoying God on a completely different level. On a completely different relationship. You need to be forgiven of your sin. But this is called into fellowship with the eternal God, literally into His own family. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has lavished on us that we would be called children of God. How's that hitting you today? How's that hitting you today? That one's not going to make sense unless you understand some background. You say, what do you mean? Those orphans that God is adopting in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, they're not cute ones. They're not even sweet ones. Okay? These ones that are called into God's family, adopted into God's family, we are the rebellious children. We are the rebellious ones. We have rejected His rule from the very beginning. Spit in His face. Rejected His rule. Went our own way instead of His. And what does He do? He loves us still. He pursues us. He gives the Son for us. He gives the Son for His enemies. And brings His enemies into His own family. 
How great a love the Father has lavished on us that sinners like you and me would be called the children of God. The children of God. Absolutely amazing. And this gift of adoption, the way that this is laid out in Galatians 4, this is every bit as guaranteed as the forgiveness of your sins. The moment that you trust, the moment that you believe you are forgiven in Christ Jesus, you are righteous in Christ Jesus, and the very moment that you trust Him, you are called into His own family, and for the rest of eternity, you have God as your Father in heaven from the moment that you believe this glorious gospel. This is not automatic. Just like redemption is not automatic, adoption is not automatic, Jesus did not come, and all the world is now the children of God, that is false. Listen to John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. But of God. Being called a child of God is a right that God has to give you, and He only gives it to those who receive His gospel. Who receive His gospel. It's a free gift of God, but you have to respond in the way that He's demanded. You have to receive it. You have to receive what Jesus has done for you. This gift of adoption is a picture of the God of the universe invading time and calling us into His own family. And that's our status. Forever in Christ Jesus, we are, the, we are the children of God from that moment forward. Nothing can separate us from this status, this position that we have before God. But look at verse 6. If the emphasis of verse 5 falls on we are children of God, that the Son of God became the Son of Man... So that we, the sons of men, could become the sons of God. If that's the emphasis. And let me say this real quick about becoming a son of God. Some of you ladies might feel left out. It's like, well, I don't want to be a son. I want to be a daughter. I want to be a daughter of God. Okay? And you need to know something really important about this text. The reason that that is translated in the, in the masculine way as sons of God is not to cut out women. Okay? This is drawing on a background in the Roman Empire that when a really wealthy man that, w- that had no heir, he had no son, no heir, that, that this is what adoption was in, in the Roman Empire, that he would search out and he would find a slave and he would adopt this slave and this slave would legally become his son in the sense of his full legal heir that all of the inheritance of the Father would be given to this adopted son. So it's good news for every person in this room, even women. We all want to be sons in the sense that we are the full legal heirs of this glorious inheritance that God has given His children. This is our position in Christ. But verse 6, the emphasis falls a little different. In verse 6, we're not talking about our position That never changes. In verse 6 we talk about our daily experience of enjoying and walking in this status of sonship. This status of adoption before God. Listen to it. Verse 6. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. 
Abba, Father. It could have stopped. It could have stopped. It's good enough without verse 6. could have stopped there. But what we see here is a glimpse to the heart of God. That God is so concerned. He is so concerned that we enjoy this, this gospel blessing of sonship and adoption that Jesus has freely given us. That not only does He send the Son, He sends the Spirit. The, sec- the third member of the Trinity is now indwelling the heart of every single Christian. He's ensuring that we enjoy these gospel blessings and that the work of Jesus Christ doesn't fall to the wayside. The Holy Spirit indwells the heart of every Christian. Romans 8 verse 9, Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. Is there any such thing as a Christian without the Holy Spirit? No. No. The Holy Spirit indwells the heart of every Christian. And then look at this close. He's there. He's indwelling us. And what is He doing? What is He doing in verse 6? He's producing a cry in us. There's a cry, a Spirit-empowered cry that's welling up in our hearts. We express this through prayer. That's how we cry to God. This word is a powerful word. That word cry It's the same word that blind Bartimaeus used to describe him when he cries out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. This is not the the preparing speeches for God in this, this ritual type prayer. This is desperate, calling on God. Son of David, have mercy on me. This is the same word that's used when Jesus cries out to the Father from the cross. It's a powerful word. The Spirit is producing this in us, this cry deep within us, expressed through prayer. And how does it come out? Two words. The phrase, Abba, Father. He is mighty at work in us. Third person of the Trinity. And He is at work in us to produce this. To produce this. These cries to God. Abba, Father. That is the language of intimacy with God. Closeness with the eternal God that that inhabits eternity, dwells in inapproachable light, that that verse just said that justified sinners can go to this God and we can call God our Father, our Father in heaven. Jesus taught us to pray like this. Do you know just how much grace is in that word? That should rock our entire being. That the first thing that we say is, Father, hallowed be your name. Father, we address God As Father, and this is the work of the Holy Spirit within us. This means that we have access to the God of glory, the Holy, Holy, Holy One. Angels hide their faces, hide their bodies from this God. Yet we approach Him in Christ like a child going to their parents, like a child going to their daddy. This is how much access we have to God. And Jesus came. And He died and He purchased this for you. Sent the Holy Spirit to ensure that you would experience this. This is not a vague thing, this sonship and adoption. This is a reality that we experience daily. We call out, Abba, Father. This is language of intimacy. But you know what else it is? It's the language of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Word for word, He prays, Abba, Father. And what is that? That's a measure of encouragement. Number one, 
we have the same access as Jesus Christ has to the Father. We use the same language because we're in Him. Because we're in Him by grace. But what else does it do? It's a reminder that in our lowest moments of suffering, like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, Suffering is breaking loose in our life. But what's the glorious promise of the gospel? That we know God as Father and He comforts us in our moments of darkness. That we can draw near to the Father and experience His intimate presence. This is why the baby is in the manger. Is this a reality in your life? Do you experience this? The Holy Spirit indwells us to, to ensure that this communion with God happens. This is His mark of authenticity in us. This is His seal of authenticity. That that adoption and that redemption that we just talked about, it really happened. How do we know? Because He's bearing witness in us that I'm a child of God. That I'm a child of God. That I know God as Father. That's not... A cold fact to me. That is a daily experience. Jesus has made me new. And I know God is my Father. This is why He indwells us. Listen to Romans 8, 15 and 16. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Do you know anything like this? Nobody can experience this for you, right? This is where this gospel and this salvation becomes reality. This is not an idea. Jesus is not an idea to study. He's a living person that indwells Christians. He is inside of us. It's a reality. As Christians... Our communion with God, it's not perfect. It is not perfect. We do not enjoy perfect communion with God. Our communion with God is not unbroken. We have moments of weakness. But this passage teaches that every Christian's communion with God is real. It is real. It is not theoretical. It is a reality in their life. It is the mark of authenticity that you are a Christian. That you know God as your Father. So the question is, do you experience this intimacy with God? Do you, do you know any, anything of this sort in your life? J.C. Ryle used to say, blessed are you if you know these things by experience. Blessed are you if you know these things by experience. Do you know anything of a deep, joyful conviction that I, by grace, I am a son of God. I know God as my Father. By grace, I am a daughter of of the King of Glory. Do you know anything like that? Do you know anything like drawing near to the Father and your moments of darkness and your moments of weakness and experiencing His comfort as your Father in Heaven and weeping at His feet and knowing God is your Father? Do you know anything about this? Do you know anything like this? We should never take this for granted, that we get to address God as our Father in heaven. Never should we take this for, for granted. We don't enter into God's presence 
into, into His throne room, beating our chest that I'm a son of God, I'm a daughter of the King. We come by grace. This, these things are true to us by grace. That's why we're adopted children. Not by nature. Not by nature are we children of God, but by grace. By grace. Jesus came to give us close communion with, with God the Father. Have you ever connected those two things? You ever connected that? How high does that exalt? Knowing God in closeness and in intimacy that the baby is in the manger that I would be a son of God and that the Spirit is in my heart that I would know God as my Father. This gives an exalted view of this enemy. And this is encouraging, right? If we want to believe God, I want to believe Him that He's there and that He came and that He accomplished this. And I want to believe Him that His Spirit is within me and that He is producing these cries in each of us. I want to trust Him. Communion with God is the highest privilege known to man. You think you like some hobbies? You think, you think there's some joy to be found in some hobbies? The Bible teaches that in His presence is fullness of joy. Psalm 1611. Did you catch that? Fullness of joy in the presence of God. That everything that you can possibly imagine experiencing that's good and joyful is found in Him. In Him. So I want to close with this thought. The Son of God came so that this would happen. That we would cry, Abba, Father. That we would enjoy this intimate, close relationship with God. And so, Church of Jesus, brothers and sisters whom I love, here's the question to leave you with today. Will you spurn this gift of Christ? Will you spurn it? Will you lay it by the wayside? When you see from God's Word that He came, that we would enjoy this, that we would know God as our Father, will you lay that to the side? Or, and spurn it? Or will you make use? Will you make use of your blood-bought right to commune with God? Jesus came that you would know God, that you would commune with God, that you would walk in this world, but that you would walk with Him. You know that they said that about Christians in the early church? That they looked on them? And you know what the Bible says about them? In Acts chapter 5, they could tell that they had been with Jesus. They had been in His presence. You can't manufacture that. You can't fake that. They walk with God in this world. We want to be a church that lays hold of these things. And I'm encouraging you today that the Word of God teaches that every single one of us in Christ, we can cry out to God with passion and intensity and closeness. We can know God more than we ever even ask or imagine because of what Jesus has done for us. Do you believe that? Encourage you. You can weep at the Father's feet. You can experience His comfort like you never dreamed in your, in your darkest moments. You can cry out, Abba, Father. And you can experience God. We are God's children now. We don't have to wait for this. We are God's children now. And we are God's children forever through eternity. God is our Father in heaven. Let's pray. Lord, we love You and we thank You for Your Word. Lord, we do. We ask You to visit the teaching of Your Word, God, and that You would make it effective, Lord. Your Word says that the unfolding of Your Word gives light and imparts understanding to the simple. And that's what we desire, Lord. We desire to be taught by You, God. God, reveal Your glory to us today. God, comfort 
comfort the downcast today and encourage us all to press in to know you, Lord. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you came to save us. We count ourselves as unworthy, God, of your salvation. Praise to your holy name, Lord, that you came for us. And we worship you, Lord. Amen.